And fatherhood is, is a big deal. It's a really big deal because according to God's word, he designed the family unit to be led by a husband and a father who is submitted to Jesus Christ. God would say, this is the way I've designed this thing to work. He designed it with intentionality. So if we're going to experience God's blessing and favor on our lives, man, and on our families, we have to lead as fathers and husbands submitted to Jesus Christ because that's his design. So how do, how do we actually do that? And I'm not talking about abstract concepts. How do we actually do that? And today in part one of our new three-part series, Foundations, we're going to look at one of the most concrete, practical clear and doable things you can do as a husband or a father or as a man preparing for both of those things to be led by Jesus Christ and experience God's blessing on your life. So we are starting, as I said, a three-week series called Foundations, and this is the idea behind this series. Whatever you hope to achieve in life, it will require specific disciplines in order to achieve it. And I think this is something we all we all understand on a, on a very simple, basic level. We understand that if you want to achieve things in life, you have to do more than write down a list of goals, put it on your bathroom mirror, and high-five it every day. There are concrete steps that you have to take, practices you have to incorporate into your life, disciplines you have to master if you're going to achieve your goals. If you desire to have a, a healthy body, the awful truth is that you will ultimately have to care about your diet and exercise. That's the truth. We all know it. If you, if you want to achieve a certain position in your career, you may have to take additional schooling. You may have to try and strategically become employed at a specific company. You may have to do certain things to climb the corporate ladder. Whatever you hope to achieve, it's going to require specific steps. So what are the disciplines, what are, what are the practices that result in a christ centered life how do we go from just saying i want jesus to be the lord of my life i want to live the life he has for me i want to experience the fullness of jesus leading my life what are the practical disciplines that will bring about that result because just like everything else hoping it will be so will not make it so will not make it so einstein famously said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Expecting different results. Thomas Jefferson said, if you want something you've never had, you must be willing to do something you've never done. And this series that we're doing is all about the call that God has put out to all of us to grow up and mature in Christ. Maybe you've looked at yourself and you're frustrated because your relationship with God seems wildly inconsistent. You know, one minute you're on top of the mountain and you just want to like pray for random strangers, you know. Be healed. Come back from the dead. Sir, please get out the morgue. Oh, okay, sorry. I'm, I'm in a good place with God right now. Just a really good place. The next time somebody sees you, they're like, how are you doing? And you're like, you know, do you ever wonder if God is real? You're just wildly inconsistent. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you're, you're seeing the effects of being disconnected from God in your life. And you're frustrated because you just can't seem to be consistent. You find yourself becoming depressed, feeling just dead, apathetic. And you know the reason is your disconnectedness from Jesus. 
but you just can't seem to get disciplines and practices in your life that bring about that consistent joy and peace that you're looking for. That's what this series is all about. We're going to be talking each week about one core discipline that will bring about a Christ-centered life. A Christ-centered life. Jesus said this. He said, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. He said that in John 10.10. 10. Dave and I were just talking this week about the incredible reality that Jesus is not just the best way to live in the next life. He's the best way to live in this life. If any of you were ever raised in the church, I, I don't know if you ever got this feeling, but sometimes you get the feeling as a teenager or a young person that, hey, you know, the next life's going to be amazing. You know, all the harps you want, like really incredible. And, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. This life, you're just going to have to suck it up a little bit, you know. You're going to have to miss out on all the fun stuff. But the good news is there's another life coming. And that doesn't really mean a whole lot to you when you're a teenager or in your 20s or in your 30s. It's not really a good pitch, even though it might be true. But what you discover when you look through Scripture is that Jesus' offer to us is not be miserable in this life for a super awesome next life. He said, I've come that you might have life, life to the full, life in abundance, starting here and now. So the promise of Jesus is, I am the best way to live now. I am the best life that you could possibly live now, right now. When we function according to God's design, and this is the first fill-in on your outline, it's this simple concept. When we function according to God's design, we experience life. When we do things His way, when we're doing life as it was designed to be done, we experience life. And when we function contrary to God's design, we experience tension. We experience tension. So there's always life when we do things God's way, and there's always the introduction of tension when we don't. Always. The wise man or woman recognizes this truth and strives to live God's way. God's way. So today we're talking about the Bible, the Word of God, the, the Scriptures, the living Word, and on this Father's Day, I want to encourage all the men to realize two things about Scripture. Scripture gives us Jesus as a man, the perfect role model of manhood. And Scripture gives us an example of how our Heavenly Father interacts with His children, the perfect model of fatherhood. That's what Scripture gives us. Jesus as a man, showing us the example of what it means to be a godly man, and God the Father interacting with his children in the Old Testament and the New Testament, showing us what a loving father looks like. So for any Christian man, Jesus is the model of manhood. The heavenly father is the model of fatherhood. And if we're going to be wise, if we're going to experience the best life we can, we have to choose our role models rightly and make sure that they are our role models. You know, I'm always amazed at the lens people will go to in the name of a spiritual quest. I mean, have you ever known anybody who did something just bizarre or maybe insanely expensive in the name of spiritual pursuit? And here's what I mean. When we lived in Florida, we had neighbors. They both worked full-time, had no kids. They were married. And they were always going off on these spiritual quests. All the time, they'd have this big trailer, they'd pack it up, and they would just disappear for six weeks. They would find out, well, where, where did you go? And it's like, well, we drove to Alaska. And just soaked in it, man. Like, soaked in what? 
Like the, the, like the, the electromagnetic phenomena, man. That's what we did. What? And it spent thousands of dollars taking multiple flights to Peru and, and hiking to Machu Picchu and, and so they could put their hands on the rocks and say, man, you can feel it there. You can feel it there. I don't know about you, but if I put that much effort into anything, I'm going to make darn sure that I feel something when I put my hand on that rock, even if I have to lie to myself. It's kind of like taking your family to Disney World, right? You know, the kids are crying, and you're like, we are making magic memories. This is going to be amazing, and you're going to remember this forever. Suck it up. You know, it's like just not an option that there's going to be magic memories. There will be magic memories. How you feel about it is irrelevant. There will be magic memories. And so people go to these incredible lengths in the name of spiritual pursuit, climbing mountains, you know, living in some random place in squalor, all kinds of weird, weird stuff. And I'm so glad and true, and I'm so glad, I'm sorry, that the true and living God is not like that. He's not like that. He's not hard to get to. There's, there's no elaborate ritual our God has made profound spiritual revelation available to us in his word, in his word. In three weeks, we're going to be starting a, a new series called I Am Jesus that I'm really excited about. We're going to be basing it in the gospel of John, but taking a look at the complete life of Jesus Christ. Every teaching, every miracle, every interaction, every parable, every conversation so that we can find out the biblical Jesus, what he really looks like. And I can't wait to dig into that. And, and the Gospel of John starts with one of the most important passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. This is what it says, the beginning of the Gospel of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Here's why it's so important, and this is on your outline. The word, the phrase the word, is one of the titles given to Jesus in Scripture. John opens by giving Jesus the title, the word. It says he is the word. He is the Word made flesh. That, that's what that means, that Jesus is the Word. The Bible is literally part of Jesus. As much as a limb is part of the human body, the Bible is a part of Jesus. It was written by men who were inspired by God and directed by the Holy Spirit, but all Scripture was ultimately authored by Jesus. Jesus made sure that what he wanted in his book got into his book. That's what I mean when I say the Bible is Jesus. It is Jesus. It's not something he did and put on a shelf. It is a part of him actively. It's not disconnected from him. And the implications of these truths are staggering and profound because it means when you sit down to read your Bible, to seek God through the word, you are literally sitting down and fellowshipping with Jesus. You are communing with Jesus. You are interacting with Jesus when you dig into the scriptures. So why don't we do it all the time? Why don't we do it all the time? I was wondering this. Most of us know this actually already and believe this. So why don't we do it? And I really believe that the reason is that we're naturally prideful. And here's what I mean. It doesn't seem spiritually profound to sit down and open a book and just read it. 
and try to understand it. It's certainly not as dramatic as hiking for four days to get to Machu Picchu. It's just not. A theologian after theologian throughout the centuries have observed that we are drawn back to a works-based faith again and again and again. Even though we're saved by grace, there's something in us that wants to take a bigger role in our salvation than God ever allows us to. So we love these profound spiritual acts that look great on the outside. There are people among us, maybe, maybe even you, maybe even me, who somebody said to us, you know, you would connect with God if you climbed these steps on your hands and knees 10 times. We'd be like, oh yeah, that seems to make sense. Or you could uh, sit down and read the word for 30 minutes. I'll take the steps. Sounds crazy, but a lot of us would take that choice every time. And the reason is that we get to take more credit for it when we climb the steps rather than when we just open the word of God. But here's, here's what I find interesting is, is isn't that completely consistent with how Jesus is? You know, the biggest stumbling block to people coming to faith in Christ is simply their pride. We struggle with the idea that you mean Jesus did it all. Yes, Jesus did it all. There's nothing I can take credit for. No, there's nothing you can take credit for. That's how our salvation works. And our spiritual growth works the same way. Jesus says, this is how humble and simple it is. Just open the book and read it. Ask me to speak to you through it, and I'll do it. Like, that's it? That's it? How like Jesus that is. Because what are we going to take credit for? Yes, yeah, God's word uh, encouraged me and matured me and spoke to me and shaped me and molded me, but I had to open up the book. I mean, there's just not a lot in there we can really take credit for. And you find that that is the way that God loves to work. He loves to work. It's why scripture says he exalts the humble and he literally opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. If you don't recognize that you have a need for Jesus, God is opposed to you. This is why I encourage you, if you know someone who is firmly in that place where they're proud and they don't think they have any need for Jesus at all, don't even bring them to church. I mean that sincerely because they're not going to get anything out of it. There's no point. they got a hardened heart. People you bring to church are people who are starting to go through a crisis in their life. Maybe their marriage is falling apart. Maybe... Their work situation is falling apart. Maybe they're dealing with depression or loss. But they're just in a place where they're starting to have the realization that maybe they're not God. That's when you bring somebody to church because God is already working in them. But listen, God opposes the proud. He doesn't just ignore them. He opposes them. He is against them when they're in that place. So don't even bring them to church. But look for the people that God is already working on. And that's the problem with scriptures. People don't find it sexy enough, right? Because all you got to do is open it and read it and ask God to show you something. It's like, no, I'd, ra- I'd rather climb a mountain in some type of uncomfortable robe. Yes, yeah, that seems more like it. That seems more like it. But God exalts the humble. He opposes the proud. And we see that even in the concept of the Bible. Even in the concept of the Bible. Jesus says this in John 6, 63. He says, the words that I speak to you are spirit 
and they are life. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. This is a, a profound concept for us because if you have been in church any length of time, you know that we have services where we just say, man, the spirit was really there in that service. Spirit was really there in that service. And what we're, what we're saying is just that we were able to sense the presence of God. We had an awareness of the presence of God that was higher than normal. And we, we all have that. We all have those experiences. But we sometimes slip into this mindset where we say, okay, you know, the Bible, Scripture is all about the intellect. It's all about understanding God. The worship service, worship and singing and praying, that's the spiritual stuff. That's where the Holy Spirit gets involved. When you teach the Word, the Holy Spirit is, is like always in the room going like, oh, come on, can we get to the worship? Can we get to the worship? That's always kind of the picture that I had growing up. Then you realize what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, my words are spirit. Where my word is, there my spirit is. When you're seeking to know me in my word, my Holy Spirit will be there, present among you. And so for us as a church, we believe that the single most consistent way to have the presence of God active in our church is to have a church that's centered on the word of God. That's why we do this. Because it is consistent. And I don't know about you, but you have those, those moments in life where you sense God more than others. But the word of God is consistent. It is consistent. Even in the worship service, you might be having an amazing time singing and praising God, and then the sound system tanks. Or I forget like five words in a row, and you're like, I was right there. And then you had to go and sing flat. Thank you so much. Holy Spirit has left the building. So things come and go sometimes in prayer and in worship even, but the word of God is consistent. It's consistent. And e even for me, when I come into church on days when I'm nervous, like, oh, is, is everything going to work? Is everything going to go together? What calms me is saying, listen, if everything else goes wrong, we are locked out the school. We can go sit in a circle on the field if it's a sunny day, break open the word of God, and the Holy Spirit will be there, and God will be there. So we want a church that's built on the word of God. Isaiah 66.2 says this, God, this is God speaking, he says, but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Who trembles at my word. So God's saying, this is the person that I'm going to look at. My eyes are on this person, the person who has a poor and contrite spirit. What this means is it's the person who's just acknowledging, God, I need you. God, I need you. I can't do this without you. I'm lost without you. I'm hopeless without you. God says, the person who has that heart and that person who reveres my word, the person who honors my word, who respects it, that person I'm going to look at. And so respecting the word of God simply means taking it seriously. It means when you hear something from God's word that's not happening in your life, you say, I got to do that. But you're not trembling at the word of God when you hear God's word speak to something in your life and you say, I know God's word says that, but uh, that's just not for me. That's not for me. That's not trembling at the word of God. That's not revering the word of God. So God says, says again, listen. When you're proud, I'm going to oppose you. When you're humble, I'm going to exalt you. My eyes are on you. My eyes are on you. What a blessing it is that Jesus has made knowing him more deeply as simple as opening a book. There's no one like Jesus. He's just wonderful. That's how he is. And 
Jesus has made himself freely available through his word. It's on your outlines. He's made himself freely available through his word. And his word is constant. Hebrews 13, 8 through 9 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. He's the same. And what you notice is that Jesus and his word share the same characteristics. Just as Jesus is unchanging, the word of God is unchanging. Just like Jesus is. It's a foundation that you can build your life on. I don't know if you've noticed, but society's values tend to change. Moral values tend to change in society. Society is not a firm foundation to build your values on. If all you are is a mirror of what you see around you, then I would say philosophically, it's impossible that your life is built on the truth. If you're simply reflecting something that is constantly changing and there's no constant, there's no consistency, it's impossible that your life is built on the truth. And that's the beauty of Scripture is that God's Word is constant. It's constant. And we just finished studying Paul's work in the Ephesian church. And we remember what Paul said in Acts 20. We read this just last week where Paul said, So now, brethren, I commend, I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's write this down. God's word produces spiritual maturity. You remember last week we shared that, that Paul is basically saying, I can't be with you, but you've got God's word. And that's enough, that if you cling to it, you will grow up. You will become mature. Just stick to the word. Cling to the word. Do what it says. Build your life on it, and you'll be okay. And this is the amazing thing to me about the word of God. This is the genius of God, is that Bibles can go where even missionaries can't. I don't know if you know this, but the church wouldn't be very effective if in order for it to work, we all had to have our own priest or our own pastor who followed us around all the time, was just in the house all the time. It wouldn't be very effective. So God gave us his word. And he said, listen, you can smuggle this in a suitcase. It's much harder to smuggle a pastor. And his word can go places that even people can't. And his word can stay in places when people leave. And when you look back at history, you find the incredible truth that the church began to really explode and start to look more and more like what Christ had in mind all along when his word began to spread and explode. You can go back and read the story of Martin Luther and the Reformation and, and just the power of what happened when God's word became accessible to people. What happened? It was a revolution because there's so much power in the word of God. And the key to all this working is something incredibly important. You'll want to put this on your outlines. That when studying God's word, we must concern ourselves with what Jesus intended to communicate and not what we want to hear. We have to concern ourselves with what Jesus wanted to communicate, not what we want to hear. Because Jesus had an intent behind what he was saying in Scripture. And that needs to be our primary concern. So imagine reading a, a product manual for a lawnmower. And the instruction is to start, push the primer three times 
before pulling the starter cord. Now, now imagine that I say, clearly what's important is, is that the button is pushed in some way, right? I think that's really what the manual is trying to say. So um, I'm just going to push it once. I'll just push it once. Well, will the lawnmower work? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. But if it, if it doesn't work, it's going to be because I didn't actually push it three times like the manual said. Well, well, what if I said, you know, clearly what the manual is, is saying is that there needs to be some type of human-machine uh, interaction on a physical level. That's really the point of this. So I'm just going to pat the lawnmower five times on the head, and then I'm going to pull a starter cord. Lawnmower is not going to work. It's not going to work. Or, or, or what if I said, this, this manual... <laughs> You're so narrow-minded. This manual is really about the relationship between machines and man. That's, that's at the heart of this manual. So this really applies to any machine-human relationship. So I'm going to go get my toaster, and we're going to hang out, and then we're going to go mow the lawn with my toaster, because that's what this is about. It sounds absolutely crazy and ridiculous, but the point stands, the point is that the writer of that manual intended to communicate something specific. And your primary concern should be trying to figure out what that specific thing was. Not all the different ways that you could read it, just the one question, what did he mean when he wrote this? What was he trying to communicate? Not what do I want it to say, what did he mean? And that's the approach that we need to take towards Scripture or we'll literally end up reading a fairy tale. We'll end up robbing the Word of God of its power because we'll simply read what we want to read rather than what Christ wants to speak to us through His Word, through His Word. And Scripture makes it clear that our, our Heavenly Father wants us to trust Him completely. And this trust that we can have in God as we apply His Word to our lives is simply called faith in Scripture. It's called faith. And the more you read the Word of God, the more you see that faith is the key to everything. It's the key to everything. I've used the analogy before of if my kid is on the edge of the pool and I say, jump to me, jump to me. And my kid says, no, 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 no. I say, jump to me. Mm -mm. Soon things are going to get really, really serious. I'm going to be like, you will jump, you will jump, you will jump right now. I will come out that pool, you will jump. So, and eventually if I have to, I'm going to get up, throw him in the pool and jump in and again catch him. But he's getting in the pool. And some of the reason is that I'm his dad. And it hits a nerve in a dad when you realize that your kids don't trust you when they should. You know that they should. And that's sometimes why we push through that. Because we realize this isn't about jumping in the pool anymore. This is about whether or not you trust me. And you got to trust me because I deserve your trust as your dad. So for our Heavenly Father... We push the same button in him anytime we don't trust him. We don't put our faith in him. He essentially says, guys, you're making me look bad. Because when you don't trust me, you're telling everyone around you that I don't deserve your trust. And I deserve your trust. But on the flip side, when you do trust him, it honors him in a great way. Because he says, thank you. You're recognizing that I'm trustworthy. That's honoring to me. It shows the world around all of us, that I am trustworthy. So faith is the key to everything, everything in the Christian life. In Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is 
and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what is faith? What, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 puts it like this, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Another translation says, to have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for and certain of the things we cannot see. So here's what faith is. It's taking what we know in our souls to be true and translating it into our physical world. Translating it into our physical world. Making it visible. When we trust God to provide our future spouse and we wait on him to provide a person of character, we are making our invisible faith visible. When we trust God with our finances, we're taking an invisible God and making our faith in him visible. Anytime we parent according to the word of God instead of just our emotions, we're taking something invisible and making it visible. So this is what faith is. Faith is being sure of what you hope for, even though you cannot see it, and living a life that makes it visible. It says this is what faith looks like. This is what faith looks like in work, in relationships, in family, in finances. That's what faith is. So the next logical question about faith is where does faith come from? I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but faith is not like a light switch. You can't just flick it on and be like, yeah, I woke up today and uh, just decided to have extreme faith extreme faith. Let's go heal some sick people. It's just not how, how faith works. Faith builds upon faith. It's bigger and bigger and bigger. You trust God with a little. He comes through. You trust him with more and more and more and more. Faith builds that way. Oh, well, that was really exciting. All right. So there's this process that the Lord has created. God has created a process that produces faith. So at the end of this equation, there's equals faith. So let's take a look at what this formula is because it is a rock-solid formula. Here's the process. The first thing that happens is you hear the word. You hear the word. You hear the word. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here's where faith starts. You hear the word of God. Second thing that happens is you apply the word of God. You apply the word of God. You can hear the greatest, most exciting, dramatic, Holy Spirit-filled sermon in the world. And if you do nothing with it, that's the end. That's the end. No person can simply impart to you all the faith that you need. It's hearing the word of God and then saying, okay, I've heard what God wants me to do. Now I'm going to do it. That's the second step, applying it to your life. Thirdly, you will experience God honor his word. Honor his word. This is what it says in Isaiah 55. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. This is what God is saying. He's saying you hear the word, you apply the word. God says, I will always honor my promises. I will always honor my word. God says, if you'll honor my word, I will honor my word in your life. He says, if you do things my way according to my word, I'll honor that every single time. So you've heard God's word. You've applied it to your life. Maybe you're even a, a little nervous. You're like, I don't know if this is going to work. But you do it, and then it works. 
then it works. I don't know if you've ever been a skeptic of something and then tried it and found that it actually works. And there's this almost like euphoria that sort of comes through. And that's what happens when you trust God. You do it and you realize, whoa, whoa, this, this actually works. This actually works. And the result of that is greater faith. Is greater faith. Because the light switch comes on and you say, you know what, I did it God's way and it worked. I guess I really can trust him. I guess I really can trust him. And that's some of the problem is we get stuck in this deadlock of faith where, where we say, I, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if he's going to come through for me or not. But if you took a step back from your life, you'd realize you, you probably never really trusted him with anything. And you want to see the result before you take the step of faith. God says it doesn't work that way. Hear the word, apply the word, and then you'll experience God honoring his word. That results in greater faith. And then you simply repeat the process over and over again. But here's what happens. When you repeat the process, it gets a little bit easier the second time. The challenge becomes a little bit greater. And before you know it, you go from saying, oh, I don't know if I can trust God with $10 of my $100 paycheck. You look back and remember when that was a daunting moment. You were sweating as you wrote the check. And suddenly you'll wake up one day and you'll realize, I'm moving to the other side of the world because God asked me to. And that didn't just happen. Between those two places of faith, you'll find that there were bigger steps, bigger steps, bigger steps, bigger steps, bigger steps, all the time, all the time. When you follow the story of Joshua in the Old Testament, you notice that it starts with Joshua battling one city, goes up against Jericho, one city. And as you read the story, it's really neat because everything that Joshua goes against gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And his final battle is against an army, Scripture says, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But what you'll notice is God didn't take Joshua straight to that one. Joshua would have fainted. He would have died. So God says, let's get you started with just one city. And that went pretty well. God tore down the walls of the city for him. So when they went to the next city, Joshua said, you know what, I can trust God. He'll come through for me. And God came through in a bigger way. And they went on to bigger things. So if you're not trusting God, start somewhere because faith builds upon faith. It always does. And that is where faith comes from. That's where faith comes from. So we, we know that God's word teaches us the best way to live in this life, in this life. We know that God's word produces spiritual maturity. It grows us up. It causes us to grow in wisdom. It builds faith. We know that we need this. So how do we, how do we actually put it into practice? How do we master this discipline? And that's what I want to talk about today. Because again, I don't want you to just walk out and say, yeah, God's word is super important. What am I going to change? Nothing. Except I have some great points to throw into a conversation when I talk about the Bible with somebody now. So let's get really, really practical. Your first step is simply this. Here's the first step. Find a time. Find a time. I always say that finding a time works much better when it's a time that can be consistent. Because if your time isn't consistent you tend to give God the leftovers. Have you noticed that? That when you say, well, my schedule changes, so when I read the Bible changes, that's really code for God gets the leftovers, right? That's the truth. That's the hard truth. Set a consistent time and say, you know what? I'm going to pour 
30 minutes, 20 minutes into the Word of God every day at this time. Be honest with yourself. If you're not a night person, don't schedule your Bible reading for night. Because all you're going to do is you're going to be like, oh, I just got to get through this. Uh, Jesus healed some people, then he died on the cross. Done. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Pick a time when you're alert and when you're at your best. Give God your best. For me, it has to be in the morning. I'm a morning person. Evening, I'm, I'm, I'm good for sitting and, and sitting. That's about it. Yeah, I mean, I can sit for about two to three hours with my wife and be physically present in the room. That's what I can do in the evening. So pick a time and be consistent and choose a time when you're going to be able to focus. We'll get to this, but it might even be in your car. And there are things that you can do and still focus. Unbelievably, you, you can still listen to teaching and you can still drive and be pretty focused on the teaching. I wouldn't recommend operating heavy machinery or anything with a blade while trying to focus on teaching or anything that squashes things. I, you know, so be wise. Choose a time when you can focus. Don't endanger anybody else with your spiritual walk with Christ. So choose a time. The second thing is finding a medium. Finding a medium. And, and here's what I mean. I'm much more a fan of committing a certain amount of time to the Lord every day because the whole point of getting into the Word is to know God and understand Him. That's the reason why I'm not a fan of making the commitment I'm going to read four chapters a day because you're committing to quantity over quality. There's no point reading four chapters if you don't understand it. It's better to read one verse and understand it than to read four chapters and not understand what you're reading. It's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm not a fan of having your main daily time in the Word just be the Bible on CD. Because I, I don't believe that we can actually digest what we're hearing that quickly. Here's profound truth, here's profound truth, here's profound truth, here's profound truth, here's profound truth. Did you get that? Yes. No, you, you didn't. And the, and the problem with going straight through the Bible like that is nobody stops and explains anything. You don't really understand everything you're saying. You're like, yeah, there was Jesus and there was a guy and he went and he healed him and it's good. I think it's a great thing to listen to maybe as you're falling asleep, but as your main thing, you're going to miss out on a lot of understanding if you do that. So I think understanding what you're reading is really the key to using the Bible effectively. But you need to have some sort of plan. And, and the first medium you could look at is simply reading the Bible. And so here, here's some practical options if you don't know. A practical option is a, is a good study Bible. And these have notes on the bottom of the page generally explaining everything. When you read a word you don't understand or a place, they give you some context. There, there's no study Bible that is perfect. And usually whichever one I mention, somebody's going to protest whatever version I mention. So I'll just say there is no study Bible that is perfect. The ESV study Bible has a lot of really good commentary in it. I'm a fan of that Bible. And it just gives you a little bit of understanding. Anytime you go, what does that mean? There's probably going to be a note about it on the bottom. So that's a good way to read. Another good way to read is a commentary. And a commentary is essentially a, a reading partner for reading through Scripture. It's going to give you even more detail than a study Bible generally is, more into the historical context, more understanding. Uh, I'm a really big fan of, there, there's a pastor named John Corson uh, who has an excellent commentary, and the Scriptures are actually right there in the commentary. So you don't even have to have your Bible and the commentary. You can read the verses, and he explains it as he goes. That's a great way to guarantee that every day when you read something, you actually understand what you're reading, what you're reading. 
Other great tools are online commentaries and study tools. Um, some things that I really like are, are blueletterbible.com is a great, great website that has free online tools. Uh, King James Version is probably the most accurate translation. It actually is. We use other versions for their readability, but for direct uh, transcript from the original text, King James is super accurate. So what you can do on Blue Letter Bible, you can go, find a verse, read it in that translation. You can click on any word and find out what the actual original Hebrew or Greek meaning is of the word. Like if you read a verse and, and it says, rejoice in the Lord, and you're like, okay, well, what, is, what does like rejoice actually mean? You can actually go to blueletterbible.com and find out literally what it meant when it was written. It's a great tool when you want to study down and really dig deep into something else. And it has some good commentaries on there as well. Guys like Chuck Smith have a whole free commentary on there that you can go and read. That's a great tool. Another one that I like is gotquestions.org. is a website that has a lot of really good answers to basically every Bible question that you can think of. That's a really, really, really good set of tools that you can use. But if you're not, if you're not a reader, listening to the Bible and listening to good Bible teaching is a great, great way to go. When you think about it, you might struggle to sit down and read for 20 minutes. But maybe it takes you 45 minutes to get to work and you could completely listen to a 45-minute teaching. And that's a completely valid way to study the Word of God. Like I said, as long as you're able to give it a decent amount of focus. And uh, I put some, uh, some names down on your outline there. Uh, John Corson, again, is a great Bible teacher. Dan Plord is my pastor from Florida. He's an incredible Bible teacher. Guys like Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll. You're looking for guys who take you through the Bible and actually teach through the Bible rather than guys who say, hey, today we're going to talk about the importance of being happy. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, maybe you've had this experience, but the pastor gets up, he reads one verse, closes his Bible, and then talks for 30 minutes. That's not Bible teaching in the context that we're talking about. You're looking for guys who take you through the Bible, through a book of the Bible, help you understand it, and it really gets down into your soul. So the third, so you're going to want to choose a time. You're going to want to choose a medium. Are you going to read, or are you going to listen to teachings consistently? I highly recommend against listening to teachings while surfing the internet. You're going to be tempted to do that. It doesn't work. Just trust me. You'll start out focusing, and then you'll realize that you can't read something else while paying attention to listening to something else. Like, that would actually be an insanely amazing thing if your mind could read one thing and comprehend it while listening to something completely different and comprehending it. Doesn't work. If you want to listen on your computer, put it on your speakers, and then go sit somewhere else in the room so you're not right next to the keyboard. It doesn't work. I've failed so many times at that. But thirdly, if you've chosen a time and a medium, you want to choose a starting point in Scripture. Starting point. And I highly recommend that you start with Jesus. You start with a gospel. And the reason I say that is if you start in Genesis, it's going to take you a really long time to get to Jesus. I don't know if you know this. If you look in your Bible, about 80% of your Bible is going to be the Old Testament. It's going to take you a long time to get to Jesus. Start with a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and then just keep going through the New Testament would be my recommendation. You can go straight into Acts after the gospel, which tells you all about the church, and then you have a whole series of letters, epistles about how to live the Christian life. Start in the New Testament and just keep going, and then you can go all the way back around to Genesis. So these are the practical steps, the practical ways that we can see God begin to work in our life. And I have a friend of mine who's a Romanian pastor, and he has a great quote 
that he always gives out to men in this church, and this applies to women too. But he says, the difference between a mature man and an immature man is this. And the mature man does what he must. The immature man does what he wants. That's the real difference between maturity and immaturity. And so for us as believers, to be a mature believer is to say, I'm going to do the things in my life that will produce the results that I hope to see. I'm not simply going to do the things that I want to. I'm not going to be ruled on a daily basis by my emotion, by my passion, by my desire to even sleep. I'm going to do the things on a daily basis that will get me to where I want to be, that will turn me into the person I want to be, and will get for me the life that I want to have in Christ. So if we're going to be mature followers of Christ, some of these things are going to have to become a part of our life. So you have the practical steps. You can start doing this tomorrow. Start your week this way. But it's in your hands. It's up to every single one of us to decide if we want to be mature believers or if we want to stay in the place that we are. I promise if you do this after one week of doing this, seven days, you will be a different person. You don't even need to do it 30 days. After seven days, you will begin to see change in your life, change in your thinking. And you'll begin to crave the word of God. So if you're stuck or your relationship with God is constantly going up and down, I encourage you, get a discipline into your spiritual life. Get the word of God into your life. And the consistency of his word will result in a consistency in your life. Have you ever noticed that when you go up and down with God all the time, your relationship with him and your time in the word is never consistent either? You're never going up and down like this when you have time with him that's set aside, that is focused where you're seeking him in his word. It just doesn't happen because the word of God brings peace, brings a foundation into our life. So let's be people that do that. That's the first foundation that we have. First thing we're talking about. We've got two more coming up over the next two weeks. These are things that will change your life.